0: This podcast is an unedited excerpt from a live MCLE webcast. See the episode notes for details about the speakers and links to the program's full video and audio recording. Get access to everything MCLE offers for one low subscription fee with the MCLE online pass. Try it for free for a month. Go to www.mcle.org onlinepass Please note that MCLE's products, services, and communications are offered solely as an aid to developing and maintaining professional competence. The statements in this recording may not apply to your circumstances and no legal, tax, accounting, or other professional advice is being rendered by MCLE or its speakers. For full terms and conditions, see the MCLE website,
1: We've, we've been talking about the normal situations, right? Where people who are reviewing title, you might be dealing with an estate, you might be dealing with uh, a closing, a sale of property a refinance of property. Uh, you know, you're looking at the, reg- the, the registered land, recorded land, you're looking at title and you're looking at these liens. Um, all of these are the normal situations where you'll encounter liens. I am here to talk about the abnormal situations. Uh, where liens of record may no longer exist for reasons other than just the simple passage of time. And the two primary drivers of those sorts of abnormal situations are foreclosures and bankruptcies. Uh, And that's sort of what I do. Uh, I'm gonna talk about four things. First, I'll talk about what a foreclosure is and what it does. I'll review the process. I'll talk about how it works with respect to junior and senior liens. I'll talk about what the effect of a foreclosure is on title and what you're going to see on record. I'll talk briefly about deeds in lieu of foreclosure. And then I'll talk very briefly about bankruptcy and what one can sometimes see on record in terms of bankruptcy. I am not in advance going to talk in depth about bankruptcy. Bankruptcy itself, as Lynn has said in several other instances, bankruptcy is worthy of a full day seminar. You know, people specialize in bankruptcy as a career. I'm not gonna delve into that with any great depth other than to talk briefly about um, a couple of things you might see on record that relate to bankruptcy and how that affects title. So with that, let's begin. And if you wouldn't mind moving this this slide forward, please. Thank you so much. Uh, And I'll tell you, by the way, that I've been like scribbling stuff down as, as Susan and Lynn have been talking. Uh, So I have like three sets of notes now and I've I've got like all sorts of notes on them. So bear with me as I go through here. What is a foreclosure? Um, In Massachusetts, we have two different types of title. There's legal title and there's equitable title. Massachusetts is a legal title theory state, which means that when you enter into a mortgage with your mortgage company, the mortgage company, the mortgagee, holds the legal title to the property. The mortgage or the borrower holds an equitable title. What do we mean by that? We mean that they have an equitable right under the terms of the mortgage contract to pay that loan off in full and regain the legal title from the mortgagee. That is an absolute right. It's the right of redemption. Conversely, the mortgagee has the right to eliminate that borrower's equitable title They can foreclose that right to redeem if the borrower fails to perform under the mortgage contract. So foreclosure is sort of a shorthand for the phrase of foreclosure of the borrower's equitable right of redemption, that right to pay off the mortgage and regain legal and equitable title. The result of a foreclosure is that you unite the equitable and legal title in the mortgagee or somebody taking from the mortgagee at a foreclosure sale. So that means that when my foreclosure is done, I extinguish that borrower as a matter of title. And while I'm at it, I'm also gonna extinguish the interest of junior lien holders. So this is that abnormal part of things. There are a lot of lien holders out there that are going to lose their interest in the property, not through anything that they've done, but through something that I'm going to do. Uh, And the concept of that makes sense when you think about the notion that All of these junior lien holders are taking title from a borrower who has already given legal title to the mortgagee. In this case, the first mortgagee, I'm generally going to talk about first mortgage foreclosures just because that's the easiest place to put yourself. And I'll also mention that when I talk about foreclosure, I'm typically referring to foreclosure under the statutory power of sale. Statutory power of sale is found in chapter 183, section 21, we refer to the statutory power of sale in virtually all mortgages as the phrase statutory power of sale. That is the shorthand reference back to how you do a foreclosure. If you're really curious about how to do a foreclosure and what those rights are and things like that, you can look at 183 section 21 for the statutory power of sale, the long form. Uh, But generally speaking, we're talking about foreclosure under the power of sale. There are a couple of other ways to foreclose. Um, When we foreclose normally, we meaning my office, we will actually foreclose two different ways, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, But we're foreclosing under the statutory power of sale. Procedurally, all of these things I'm about to talk about relate to that type of a foreclosure. And so when I am foreclosing that way, there are two components to a typical foreclosure in Massachusetts. Massachusetts is often defined as a non-judicial foreclosure state, in a lot of other jurisdictions, in order for an entity to foreclose, it has to go to court, file a complaint, establish the amount due, establish its right to foreclose, give the borrower the right to raise any defenses, go through the whole rigmarole and get a judgment from the court, which is then exercised in some form or another, uh, either as a, uh, as a transfer of title in itself or through a subsequent sale at the, at the property or at, uh, at the courthouse steps. Massachusetts is simpler than that. We have a judicial component though, thanks to chapter 57 of the Acts of 1943, where we incorporate the concept of the Federal Service Members Civil Relief Act, the, the SCRA. The SCRA boiled down in a nutshell, is a statute that the feds wrote back, going all the way back to the Civil War, its original incarnation. And the concept of the SCRA is to protect individuals who are on active duty in the military service of the United States. And the concept at the root of it is, you do not want somebody to be fighting for our country. And while they're doing that, something adversely happens to them back at home that they can't take care of because of their active service. That can take a multiple, that can take multiple forms. The most common things that were being targeted and are being targeted by the SCRA are basically divorce and legal judgments such as foreclosures. Massachusetts passed a separate procedural act that says. In order to have a good foreclosure and pass good title, you have to make sure that the current owners of the property are not entitled to the protections of the service member civil relief act. And you have to get a judgment to that effect. Now that doesn't mean that this is part of the foreclosure process. In other words, I can conduct a non-judicial foreclosure process in Massachusetts without getting an SCRA judgment. But when I do that, I have a cloud on title. And so, after I do my foreclosure sale, I would then have to go into court and obtain a judgment that says your foreclosure was good because the current owners were not protected by the service member civil relief act. So one way or the other, I'm going to get a judgment that says current owners aren't protected by the SCRA. The two places where I can go to get that judgment are the land court or the superior court. You will typically see those judgments coming out of the land court. There are two reasons for that. Reason number one, the land court has jurisdiction over the entire commonwealth of Massachusetts. So it's essentially one stop shopping. No matter where my foreclosure is taking place, I can go to the land court and file my SCRA uh, complaint and I'll get a judgment from them that's going to be valid. Reason number two, the land court has a very well-regulated managed process. The land court moves our SCRA processes through very smoothly It is very rare to receive a a defense in an SCRA case. I'll tell you that not all the rules of civil procedure apply. Uh, rule 81 of the rules of civil procedure actually says that SCRA cases don't, don't have governance with all of the different procedural rules like discovery and all of that. For the SCRA cases, there's only one defense allowed, actually there are two, one having to do with standing, but the primary defense is I am protected by the act. Other defenses having to do with, you know, the origination of the loan, the validity of the foreclosure, uh, separate ancillary grievances, those don't get heard by the court. My judgment is very, very limited. It just says the current owners of the property are not protected by the SCRA. That's the judicial component of our process. I will get that judgment before I go on to the non-judicial component. Here is the non-judicial component. There are two parts to that. Uh, in order for me to foreclose in Massachusetts, I have to give notice to the borrowers, owners, and junior lien holders, first by mail and publication, uh, actually by mail and then by publication. When I send notice by mail, I have to give borrowers and owners and junior lien holders notice of my sale, at least 14 days before the sale date. I have to do that by registered mail to the last known address of those parties. Registered mail here typically refers to certified mail. Anybody who's familiar with mailing processes, you're referring to the certified mail with the green cards, where you get the return receipt that the person signs when they get the letter, or just as often as not, they'll just leave them at the post office and not pick them up, and they come back unclaimed. Uh, The notices have statutorily prescribed information. Uh, and that information is set forth in chapter 244, section 14. It lays out everything that you need to have in your notice of foreclosure sale that you're sending to the borrower. The easy things like the time, the date, the place, meaning the address of the property, the legal description of the property, you've got to put that in there. If you, meaning the foreclosing entity, if the foreclosing entity is the holder of the mortgage by assignment. All of the assignments need to be included in that advertisement, in that notice. Uh, You've got to indicate who the current holder of the mortgage is that's foreclosing. And typically we will also reference the attorney's uh, name and the firm that is doing the foreclosure. Um, You've got to put down some very basic information regarding the sale and the conduct of the sale, things like the amount that's needed to be brought in order to qualify as a bidder. And you want to include something that says, terms and conditions of the sale will be announced at the auction site. I put this notice together and I mail it out to the borrowers. I mail it out to owners if they're different junior lien holders, everybody gets that notice. Uh, In addition to sending the notice by mail, I also have to publish a copy of that notice in a newspaper where the general circulation uh, with the general circulation where the property is located. uh, We run that advertisement once a week for three consecutive weeks, with the first publication running at least 21 days before the sale. Uh, If I am sending the notice by mail and I am publishing it in accordance with the statute, I do those two things, I am good to go with my foreclosure once I get to the auction point. Question from the audience is, what happens when that certified mail comes back unclaimed in the foreclosure process? It's a great question. I am not required to ensure that the person to whom I'm sending notice or the entity to whom I'm sending notice Gets the notice. I am only required to mail the notice, which means when I put that pro- when I put that notice into the U.S. Postal Service system, I have satisfied my requirements under the statute. So, technically speaking, the thing that people should be looking for as evidence of mailing is not really the green card; it's what we call the white slip, and that is the slip that we have stamped by the U.S. Postal Service when we put that uh, notice into the hands of the postal service representatives. I'm dating myself when I say that nowadays we actually, uh, use electronic notice recordings. And so we'll, we'll have what's called a firm book. The postal service has an electronic version of that, uh, white slip, which is what we use nowadays, but sometimes you are people...
2: dating yourself friend, because we have people who we say get the green cards and people are like, what's a green card? And yeah. we're like, it's literally was this green card. <laughs> oh yeah. I say People that. are like, green we card. don't do that
1: anymore. AKA yeah. notices. Yeah. I, I get the opposite of that. I get people who say, I need the green cards. And then I provide them with the firm book and they say, where's the green card? You know, or I'll give them white slips and they'll say, I need the green card to which I'll, you know, I'll give them the green card or the returned envelope. Um, and, yep. uh, that's generally all they need to see. Technology. Com- mm. Yeah. And the question comes out by the way, do I, do we also send notice by regular mail um, when we send notices to sale? You're not required to send notice by regular mail. And technically sending notice by registered mail is a form of first class mail. So it's first class mail return receipt requested, but we do also send notices typically by regular mail. And the reason for that is, as I mentioned a, a couple of minutes ago, When you're sending that certified mail notice, if the person's not home to get the mail, you know, they're going to get a little sticky that says, hey, we tried to deliver this notice to you, come down and pick it up at the post office. And a lot of people don't have the time to do that. And that is when mail comes back to us marked unclaimed. Unclaimed in postal service parlance means it's a good address. We tried to deliver it. The person wasn't there to pick it up. So we also send it by regular mail to make sure that the person gets the notice uh, wherever we can deliver it. So uh, another question comes up, does the SCRA complaint require a served summons on all or- owners and mortgageors? I don't want to spend a lot of time on the SCRA process, but again, one of the differences between our SCRA action and a regular litigation case is that we don't have the summons and complaint process for service. The land court actually sends us what's called an order of notice. It's a one-page form and they required to serve. They require us to serve that on every defendant in three ways: by recording it at the registry of deeds, by publishing a copy of it in the local newspaper, and by mailing a copy of that by registered mail and/or serving it by sheriff at the at the uh, last and usual address of the uh, of the defendant. So it's different from your normal process in a service sense. I normally just like folks to focus on the fact that I have judgment, you know, like, do I have the judgment against the right people? If I have that judgment, I'm generally going to be good to go. So, um, I mentioned junior lien holders, who are some of these entities that are entitled to notice? You know, Susan and Lynn talked about IRS, DRR, estate tax liens, the fact, Lynn mentioned those are automatic. They are inchoate liens. They're not liens of record but as a practice, I think everybody in the industry still sends notice to the IRS and the DOR for estate tax lien purposes. When we have a decedent borrower, we do that primarily for insurability purposes. A lot of the things we do are for insurability purposes. I've had various arguments with various underwriters at various points in time over the last various 20 years, and I've lost them all. And so we send notices where the insurers tell us to send notices.
3: I personally don't understand why you wouldn't, if I was doing a foreclosure, I would be um, very, um, what is the word I want to use? I would be very generous with my notices. If I thought in any way, shape or form that you had an interest in this property, I would send it to you because 10 bucks of postage or whatever to send that letter out is worth, someone not saying, I have a problem with this foreclosure. I think you missed a notice.
1: So which, true, what,
3: which makes the foreclosure up uh, no good. You're know, you, you this way secure, but it's a problem.
1: What if that person is someone you don't know is dead? Um, well, what do you right. mean, like, How would you not so, know? How so, my know? how would I not know? It's not like the people call me up and tell me they're dead.
3: No, so, but if you know, I think you have to do a little bit of due diligence. I mean, they haven't been paying for a while. Are the letters coming back? Are the letters still going there? Did you Google? I mean, did you at least use the Google? I mean, did you do an ancestry search? Did you look at the probate? I mean, what's, what is your, what is the lenders? So honestly, what, what do you think the lenders?
1: Let me just say, I am not, I don't think the lender is obligated to check and make sure every person that we are foreclosing on is alive. Mm -hmm. I think that would be true for successor owners. You know, I'm not, I don't think that the lender's obligated to Mm. confirm that somebody is still with us. Honestly, there's no foolproof way of ascertaining that. Mm -hmm. Um, What I do want to do is retain the right to say, Lynn, John Smith was a tenant by the entirety. John Smith, we just found out, passed away. I sent notice to John Smith. And his wife. And his wife. Yes. Um, and I didn't send notice to the IRS and the DOR cause I didn't know he was dead, but I don't have to. And that is the answer to your question of why would you ever not send notice to the IRS and the DOR. Well, okay. I that, context, that was,
3: but I have actually had it where people have, have a dead person, know the person's dead and then not send it to
1: the DOR or different setting. And I think a different question for mm. probably a different person. Mm. Yes it was. Other, other, other entities who do get notice and other special notice, there are really limited instances where there are special notice requirements. The most notable I'll mention in a second is the IRS federal tax lien, but earlier you guys mentioned forest and agricultural and recreational liens. We really, really infrequently see foreclosures on those types of properties. But when we do, it's important to know that those types of uh, properties require a 90 day notice to a whole host of very specific uh, persons in the same way that if you're selling those properties, you need to give the, you need to respect the right of first refusal. It's sort of a varied concept on that theme. The statutes, you know, it's 61, 61A, 61B the like, specify that foreclosures are not subject to the right of first refusal, but we do have to give a 90 day notice to a whole like the board of selectmen, the, the, you know, the, 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 town manager, the, the state forester, whole bunch of different parties. So when you are dealing with uh, one of those funky types of properties with a lien for forest or agricultural or recreational property, make sure that those notices are going out appropriately.
3: I, I, I did want to, you know, when you were talking about uh death of the borrower, mm-hmm. of course, what came to my mind was reverse mortgages because usually that's what's triggering the foreclosure is the death. Um, and you know, then there are different reasons how we look to who we have to notice. But I did want to say that once in a while, I do see a reverse mortgage being foreclosed where the person is not dead, but may have moved from the home. And a lot of times in those mortgages, especially in the HUD mortgage as we put along with it, are very specific um, requirements that you get a certificate So I just mentioned that to people that if they see those types of mortgages, they may, uh, and certificate authorizing the foreclosure. I think they look at things like, is the person moved out temporarily? Are they coming back? What's going on? Um, And so I think it's important to remind people that they really need to look at the mortgage that's being foreclosed because there could be other requirements.
1: Yeah, and that leads into my next point really well. Thank you. Um, Because in addition to, no, no, seriously, You definitely need to review the mortgage to make sure that you are following the requirements of the mortgage. Uh, We have plenty of case law in Massachusetts to say that the terms of the mortgage must be strictly complied with in order to have a valid foreclosure. Um, That's come up primarily in the context of pre-foreclosure contractual notices. Uh, But it does apply, I think generally speaking to uh, the way that you conduct the foreclosure. And so, to your point, Lynn, um, different mortgage forms have different requirements. And when you talk about a reverse mortgage, the three primary reasons for default um, are death, non payment of taxes and insurance, and move out. Uh, Borrowers in reverse mortgage situations are required to uh, meet specific conditions in order to continue getting payments because the point of a reverse mortgage is instead of the borrowers making payments, they get payments. Um, And so they're required to demonstrate to the lender that they are still in the property, uh, still that they're paying taxes and insurance. Uh, Failure to do either of those things can lead to a default condition. I will say that uh, the question comes up, are HELOCs considered reverse mortgages? You can have a reverse mortgage line of credit, but that's sort of what a reverse mortgage is, um, and generally speaking, what you'll see is not—it's not called a, he- a HELOC; it's called a HECCAM, uh, Home Equity Conversion Mortgage. That's what you'll see when you're looking at a reverse mortgage. And if you look at the terms of the mortgage, it will become apparent that you know it's not a normal like you'll pay me X every month, and they're due payments are due on the first of the month. You don't see those provisions in a reverse mortgage because that's not how not how a reverse mortgages work. So other other things to keep in mind in terms of notice to junior lien holders and other parties, you can have notice requirements in documents on record that obligate you to do something in order to eliminate a lien. For example, IRS federal tax liens. Uh, The IRS has a right to get notice of sale. Like I said, Massachusetts requires 14 days notice before the sale. IRS federal tax liens they are governed by federal law. 26 U.S.C. 7425 says that I have to give the IRS for a federal tax lien 25 days notice before the sale. And I've got to use a specific form that the IRS sets forth for that purpose. Um, If I give the IRS proper notice, I discharge the IRS's lien, although they retain a 120-day right to redeem the property after sale. If I don't give them proper proper notice, the IRS retains that right to redeem the property indefinitely. And so if I screw up that notice to the IRS, I have to get a waiver from the IRS. As Lynn and Susan said earlier, you know, one of the entities you really don't want to deal with is the IRS. We've had really good luck with the the folks at the IRS. They're very good people, but I don't want to have to rely on them to get a waiver. Um, What they will do is, the fact of an IRS federal tax lien can impact a sale to a third party because it will impede their ability to get financing and insurance prior to that expiration of the redemption period from the IRS federal tax lien. Another thing to be watching out for as a trap for the unwary is an affordable housing covenant. Affordable housing covenants a lot of times will say, we'll allow a foreclosing entity to wipe out the affordable housing covenant but only if they give notice in a specific fashion to a specific address. And so you've got to know who gets that notice, what that notice looks like. As a foreclosing entity, I also have to make sure that that affordable housing covenant is going to get wiped out. Sometimes you have an affordable housing covenant that's going to survive the foreclosure, and I have to check to make sure I know what I need to do in order to coordinate with that affordable housing covenant holder to make sure my foreclosure Is following the proper procedures, you know, if we have to qualify bidders as, as, you know, uh, eligible applicants, that sort of thing. Uh, But generally speaking, I'm trying to wipe out those affordable housing covenants wherever I can. And if the mortgage is underwritten correctly, typically I'll be able to do that. So that's another oddball junior lien holder that gets notice. The third entity that I'll mention in terms of junior liens that aren't entirely junior, both Susan and Lynn talked about this is the condo lien. Condominium liens, if they're properly perfected, have a right of superiority over even a first mortgage, but only in a limited fashion. That does not include things like fines or late charges, special assessments. Those don't ever attain priority over a first mortgage, unless the first mortgagee agrees to it, which they don't. So when I get evidence of a condominium lien on record that shows that they have properly perfected that condominium lien, I am recognizing that I need to address that as a senior lien, but I am also recognizing that I need to give them notice as a junior lien holder. And so when you see a, 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 when you see a condo lien on record, it's going to be a condo lien complaint. Take note of who the condominium association is, how it's captioning itself see if there's an address to which you can give that notice and also send notice to the attorney of record for the condominium association. Uh, condominium association liens are a little weird. Lynn talked about it before in terms of the various, you know, rights to, you know, get paid, what they ask for after the foreclosure sale. I am here to tell you in every single instance, a foreclosing entity is entirely, completely and unequivocally going to delegate the responsibility for the payment of any and every outstanding condominium lien to the buyer, period.
3: Well, I have seen though, I have seen the foreclosing, closing lender pay, pay, so some, well, and they actually would be responsible if they bought back.
1: Sure. Because they'd be the buyer.
3: Like right, so, they buyer until right. they, you know, right. So I've absolutely seen them pay some, some
1: yeah. I, and I a, lot, a lot of times the foreclosing entity will pay the condominium priority lien yes. because they want to avoid having the condominium association foreclose on its interest yes. and wipe them out. So yeah, that definitely happens. But in terms of my foreclosure process, I am definitely passing to the buyer responsibility for payment of anything that is senior to my mortgage.
3: Well, then this kind of goes counts. back to my point is you've got a contract and you've got these liens and you have priority ones and you have junior ones and you have ones that are just fees accruing regularly. You need to, as soon as you know someone who's buying a condo that's been foreclosed on, you need to
1: get a handle on what's
3: owed and who thinks they're paying what. My
1: 100, 100%. That's sort of my one takeaway is when yeah. you have a title that involves a foreclosure uh, or bankruptcy, you really, really wanna scrutinize that to decide what liens are still out there or what liens are in fact extinguished. Because like I said, procedurally, mm-hmm. if you do some of this incorrectly, you can have a void foreclosure or you can have a foreclosure that's perfectly fine, but a certain lien retains its existence in, yep. in a case where they shouldn't. And, and that's, you know, all of this tracks back to title. When I'm doing a foreclosure, the most important thing is checking title Who owns the property? Who holds the mortgage? And what junior liens are out there? What senior liens are out there? What title problems are out there? You know, you talk about situations where there's a lien that should be in first mortgage position, but it's actually in second because there's been a, a failure to obtain a subordination agreement or failure to obtain a discharge of a HELOC. I have to check all of that to make sure I know where we are, what we're wiping out, what we're not wiping out, if I have to file a title claim to make sure I clear title, I wanna do that before I move forward so that I establish my client's position correctly and I get good title coming out of that foreclosure.
3: But Brian. can I ask you a question? Sure. Which I think is a good lean uh, notice question. Sure. Uh, and if you're gonna deal with this later on, just say, Lynn, I'm gonna deal with it later on. So let's just say you're doing a regular, it's a regular mortgage. We have a nice Fannie Mae mortgage. Um, and on a residential one to four family. But we have, uh, we go ahead with our sale and all the notices have been done. And um, we're about a week before the foreclosure and an execution gets filed against the property. So we're not within 30 days. And if I'm correct, you only have to give notice to parties with an interest within 30 days. So that's sort of to avoid you know you're foreclosing against lynn and it's the day before the auction i'm going to transfer it to susan so i can put it off so now you have to go to susan or or anything else like that so now you have this execution that's come on the week before you haven't given notice are they wiped out they are but yep. do you have to do anything else well, Nope. okay so i think that's like a question that comes up frequently
1: yeah no, I, and I, again, I appreciate you bringing it up because that 30 day timeframe is important in that, you know, the statute 244.14 provides that if you're not on record 30 days or more before that sale as a junior lien holder, you're not entitled to notice. So, and technically as a new owner of the property, if you come into title, you're also not entitled to notice, but you could have a scenario where I might then have to get an SCRA judgment against those people. So.
3: So what what is what is also um, interesting about that, that type of scenario with the um the late lien holder is sometimes I will get this question, which is, well, how are we supposed to know there was a foreclosure? Um because you know people don't realize that there is no actual, and, and this is really important because I have seen this claim where someone put a second mortgage on and it's already been foreclosed. Um that there's no obligation anymore i think it was in the 90s that they eliminated the obligation of the time re- requirement to record the foreclosure documents within um, and so your notice is either the um, service members or now we see the section 35 affidavit but as long as there's something on there now well, i ask you though what if this was a corporation or someone who would not be entitled to a service member's judgment um and also would be someone who would not be required to have to um the section 35 b or c would not it was a commercial loan so wouldn't apply so there's nothing on record
1: well you'd still have to record a 35 bc affidavit you'd have to record something that says 35 bc doesn't apply
3: yes but you don't have to you don't have to put it on before the first publication so you could technically put it on at the end what if your foreclosure already happened and you hadn't recorded it yet. We have those entities meeting. are
1: still wiped out no
3: notice
1: so so here's here's the thing then and i do want to move on because I'm, I'm sorry time. no it's okay we are as i said a non-judicial foreclosure state and so it sometimes comes up a question of due process because that's sort of the implication of what you're talking about now right is there's a due, due process question supreme court has held non-judicial foreclosures are not subject to due process So those due process issues that are implicated in a judicial action, in a state action, aren't implicated in a non-judicial foreclosure. So as far as I'm concerned, if they jump on record seven days before my foreclosure sale, I hope they're reading the newspaper. I'd like them to show up a bit. So that's that. Um, Can we move to the next slide, please? Because I do want to kind of zip through these these things. Um, I mentioned that we foreclose two different ways. We foreclose by under the statutory power of sale we're also foreclosing by entry that's 244 section one in order to foreclose by entry you just show up on the property you have somebody make an open and peaceable entry with two witnesses present those two witnesses sign a certificate and their signatures are notarized and you record that certificate with the registry of deeds if possession is thereafter continued peaceably for three years after the recording of that certificate That certificate in and of itself ripens into good title. Why do we do that when we're already doing the foreclosure under statutory power of sale? Because sometimes we're concerned that there's going to be a defect in our statutory power of sale. That is less of a concern now. A few years ago, uh, the statute having to do with the affidavit of sale that we record pursuant to 244 section 15 was amended to say that once that affidavit's on record for three years, it becomes conclusive evidence of our compliance with the statutory requirements having to do with the foreclosure under power sale. So I'm loving that because once that affidavits on record for three years, I no longer have to worry that someone's going to dig in and challenge me as to where did you run the publication? Did you run that three specific, three weeks in a row? You know, did it actually run? Show me your green cards, show me your notices. I don't have to worry about any of that because my affidavit is conclusive evidence of compliance as a general rule. Prior to that affidavit being conclusive evidence, the foreclosure by entry was really important because it cut off those types of granular claims that might sometimes otherwise come back eight, 10, 15 years after a foreclosure sale. So that's why we do both the foreclosure under statutory power of sale and the foreclosure by entry. We can move and on. Thank to you.
2: And thank you for doing that, friend. And we we know you don't ever do that, do this, but um, you know, the three years part of the the problem we have is that, it, um, you know, you, you have to do your affidavit right. So um, we're going to use the word jurat. <laughs> so if you um, like your entry needs to be notarized, you need to use your jurat. Um, and so, you know, we'll, we'll take issue sometimes not with your firm, of course, but sometimes we'll have um, an, a foreclosure affidavit that goes on, but it's not good. And so they don't get the protection of, of the, the change in the statute. So we love when you do both, keep doing it. (laughs) Okay. Fountains of senders, right?
1: That's the, well, yeah, absolutely. So let's skip to the next, uh, slide. Um, and I'm going to go through these next couple of slides really quickly. You can see here what happens to lien holders. Quick rule of thumb. If the lien is senior to my mortgage being foreclosed, they survive. If they're junior to my mortgage, they're wiped out. If it's something like an IRS lien, um, I have to deal with it for a certain period of time after the foreclosure and then it goes away. So those are things to be aware of. Good. Survivors, fire liens, condo liens, I've already talked about that. We talked about tax liens and tax titles and their priority earlier on. And I mentioned the IRS federal tax liens and the right that they have to notice. If We can go to the next slide, please. Everybody who's wiped out gains an equitable interest in the proceeds from the sale. Once that sale takes place. First party that gets paid is the mortgagee. If there is money left over after the mortgagee is paid in full, the rest of that money goes down in order of priority. We do not pay prior lien holders because they still have lien. We pay the junior lien holders in the order of priority. And if there's a question, as to who has what priority, who's entitled to the surplus proceeds, mortgagee will typically go to superior court and file an interpleader action, in which they put the money into the court and say, "Here are the parties who say they may have entitlement to this to this uh, money. You figure it out." And that's what we would do with that. Uh, next slide is what you would see on record when we have a foreclosure: the post-sale documents. Lynn mentioned earlier during the process, you'll see that order of notice that I mentioned from the land court. You'll also see an affidavit that shows that we complied with chapters with sections 35B and C of chapter 244. Uh, That comes back round again at the post sale stage. When you see a foreclosure, you're going to see a deed coming out of the foreclosing mortgagee into the entity that purchased the property at the foreclosure sale. You're going to see an affidavit that foreclosure deed by the way unlike any other deed you're typically going to see does not have a legal description that form is prescribed by chapter 183 it's at the appendix of chapter 183 which you generally can't see anymore because once it went on, on online they're not readily available for whatever reason but it's a form that's been used since 1912 uh we follow that form still today there is no legal description The affidavit of sale does include a copy of the newspaper publication because one of the requirements of the statute is that you include a copy of the notice. That's our notice. That also gives you your legal description and you can see that we followed the requirements of 244.14 in content. If the party that purchased the property at the auction conveys its interest to somebody else so that their, you know, person A buys at the sale and then assigns their interest to person B who is the grantee on the deed, you'll see the assignment of bid attached to the affidavit sale. And that just shows how you go from high bidder to actual grantee on the deed. There's a question from the audience as to who processes the certificate of entry, which I mentioned before, the lawyer or the auctioneer. Generally that's going to be the person who's on site at the auction, whether that's the auctioneer or some other agent for the lender, could be the lawyer, could be somebody else. Uh, Whoever that is, generally is going to be identified in the power of attorney that we record along with the deed. So the, the foreclosing entity will say, I'm authorizing Fran Nolan to conduct a sale, make entry. And then that way you'll see with that certificate of entry, oh, okay, Fran Nolan has the authorization to go and do the entry. Uh, and that's how, how it works. But it's typically going to be the person, whoever it is that's at the auction conducting the sale or at least being present at the sale. I mentioned two affidavits here: the Pinty affidavit and the Eaton affidavit. Um, that shows compliance with uh, two cases coming out of the SJC. Pinty uh, says that you have to comply strictly with the requirements of the mortgage contract in terms of notices. Eaton says that the only entity that can foreclose is the note holder or the authorized agent of the note holder. Um, those also correspond to, cha- to sections 35B and C. So you'll get that information both before the sale and after the sale. And then finally, if you have a foreclosure that was conducted during the period of COVID, you might also see an affidavit of either vacancy or compliance with uh, moratorium requirements. Those are going to hopefully be rare and, uh, you know, over time they'll no longer be an issue. But if you see one of those things, it's going to be because of the timing of the foreclosure. Okay. We'll move on to the next slide. Um, Deeds in lieu, these are very infrequently seen, but just so you know what they are, they're voluntary transfers by the mortgage or, uh, or the estate of the mortgage or, because they're voluntary transfers, even though they mention the word foreclosure, they are not foreclosures. They do not wipe out junior liens. Sometimes you will have an entity that takes title through a deed in lieu of foreclosure, and it is not the entity that holds the mortgage. It's a related entity. So the mortgagee can then do a friendly foreclosure. It doesn't have to do an SCRA action. I never see that as a practical matter, but it could happen. If you have a deed in lieu of foreclosure, you're gonna see a deed in lieu of foreclosure that sh- that looks more or less like a regular deed. It's gonna reference consideration being, uh, you know, payment for the mortgage. Generally, it's gonna be complete payment in full of the mortgage in a note. It doesn't have to be. Consideration does need to be specified. Uh, Along with the deed, you're going to con- you're going to see an estoppel affidavit. The estoppel affidavit is designed to protect against bankruptcy, uh, where a bankruptcy trustee can argue that it's a preferential transfer, meaning the purpose of the conveyance is to evade other creditors. Um, it's also designed to make sure you can get title insurance, because the title insurers don't want to have either a preferential transfer uh, or a property that isn't being conveyed for fair market value, because then it is subject again, to challenge in a bankruptcy context, um, for, uh, you know, avoid, avoid transaction. If you're having a deed of deed in lieu of foreclosure coming out of an estate, watch out for signatory authority. You've got to make sure the person who's signing on behalf of the estate has the right to sign as the authority from the court to sign. You want to be aware of those inchoate estate tax liens and the possibility the creditors can come forward and maybe make claims against the estate that could have some impact on your ability to pass good title. And last but not least, I'm gonna talk very briefly about bankruptcy because we're at the time limit. Bankruptcy context, concepts. We can move to the next slide, Lynn. Chapter seven is liquidation and chapter 13 is reorganization. You don't really need to know about how bankruptcy works to know when you're looking at title. Bankruptcy can affect liens on record. Through bankruptcy, a borrower, an, uh, uh, a, debtor in the context of bankruptcy can modify liens, can wipe out liens as a matter of record. When you are looking at title, if you are seeing something that says it's an order on a motion determined modified status, pay attention to that because it is an order from the bankruptcy court that can, in some cases, extinguish or limit a mortgage that is on record or another secured lien that is on record. The, uh, The court order will typically tell you what those liens are and how the order affects them, whether they are extinguished or they are modified. Don't rely on a plan in a chapter 13 context to establish the avoidance of a non-consensual secured lien. If somebody tells you, oh, I wiped that out in bankruptcy. It doesn't exist anymore. You have to see the order. The plan alone is not going to do it because the plan alone does not mean that that party is determined to be, uh, wiped out or crammed down or otherwise modified. The debtor can convert a secured creditor to an unsecured creditor through an avoidance. Lynn mentioned earlier in the context of, or maybe Susan mentioned in the context of defects in a mortgage notary clause. This is the sort of thing that can happen. You will again, see an order of record that says the court is telling the mortgagee You no longer have a secured mortgage, but the trustee may retain the rights of that mortgagee for the purposes of paying unsecured creditors. Doesn't happen often. If you see one of these things on record, contact your underwriter. And I think that is all I wanted to cover